Well, this is a really fun night. Uh, like to welcome our snowbirds back to town. Uh, Rick and Linda are back in Austin, their real home, as we like to call it, uh, just after a cruise through uh, the Mediterranean and uh, from, from Salt Lake to, to Italy to Austin. Welcome. We're glad you're back. Uh, it is so good to have you. I, I have to um, just say it's really fun to look up here. Uh, um, there's this verse that comes to mind out of Luke chapter 6, verse 40, and it says, a student, uh, when fully trained, will not be better than his master, but be like them. Uh, it is a great verse on discipleship and apprenticing. What we look to do is when we deposit a, a living faith into our kids, that they would take on the faith and learn how to give their faith away. Uh, tonight, sharing the stage with uh, B. Sterling are two of his current and former students. And so it's really fun that B is bringing people along, not just in the classroom, but to share a stage and bless us tonight. And so Sally, we love having you and your violin here. And Parker, thanks for plucking away at that bass. It's so good, so good. Uh, and, and Nathan, our friend, is here. I, I don't know what happened to Nathan. Uh, oh, there he is. There he is, hanging out in back like a drummer. Uh, Non-committal. No, I'm just kidding. There's lots of room in the front row. So it is so good uh, just to see what God's doing here uh, each week. Um, oh, yeah, and I got some um, passes. So part of the prizes next week... Uh, you're going to want to like not just get your tickets because we need to make an order. You're going to want to practice hospitality and figure out some of my friends are ready to be invited to worship. A few more might be ready to visit like some refugees or do a, a meal or a visitation. Some might even be ready to come to a living room gathering. A lot aren't. But some of your friends might be willing to play trivia and eat some really good barbecue in a brewery uh, with you next Sunday. And we have part of um, uh, the, the prizes for trivia are some Lick um, gift cards. So you got that to look forward to. So if you're into Lick, I know people. I know people. Uh, so let me start with this. It was a few years ago, I was approached by a lady. Uh, she called me and I didn't know her or her family and she was calling because her daughter had gotten engaged and thinking that she might be a helicopter parent. I said, why isn't your daughter <laughs> calling me and asking about this? And she says, well, my daughter is living in China with her fiance and they're working over there. I said, are you Chinese? She goes, no. I said, is he? And he said, no. He says, <clears throat> and, and in this sort of proud way, there's this son who, and uh, <clears throat> they had a, a family furniture company based out of Dallas, Texas. And uh, they did their overseas manufacturing out of, uh, you know, a factory in, in China. I said, oh, okay, sure. And um, so we looked at dates and we talked and then it, it was kind of figured out a time for me to meet when her daughter got stateside and it was just her at the initial meeting. And so I was kind of curious about their story. It's hard to marry strangers because you just like to be personable. That's me as a pastor, not as a justice of the peace. It's just how I roll. But... Um, you know, talked about college, how they met, talked about how they grew up, what their church family was like growing up and how that was expressed. But then I was curious to know about what it was like working in China. And specifically, because in my mind, I have these horror stories about the exploitation of workers overseas. And so I wanted to see as someone who's actually manufacturing in, in, in China, what it was actually like. And so I, I said, well, tell me about this facility. And she goes, oh, it's 
it's, it's not great. I mean, you know, they've got dormitories set up for the workers and they come from far uh, away and they stay in these housing. I said, well, you know, is it, is it long days? She goes, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like at least 10 hour days, sometimes longer. Uh, and, and I said, well, you know, what, what are the wages like there? And, and she says, well, you know, I mean, it's roughly about, you know, $2 a day if, if, if they're lucky. And so everything in me is full competitive. Like, I'm judging this person. I don't want to do her wedding. She sees that there's nothing wrong with this. And, and everything in me was going, no, give her, give her a chance. Like, why is this okay? Why is this acceptable? Why is this even normal? And so I, rather than writing her off, decide, well, I'm going to do what every good pastor would do and play the passive-aggressive role. <laughs> so I start, like, <laughs> let me try and inspire imagination. I go, man, what would it be like if you were, like, the only company that, um, that would, uh, I don't know, like, pay them an extra buck an hour? Yeah, uh, this is all they know. Oh, okay. Do you ever go out into like the factory? She goes, oh, I mean, as little as possible. It's miserable. I mean, there's just no air conditioning. I don't like to hang out down there. I'm like, what if you were the only company that decided we're going to provide a better working environment and there was going to be air conditioning? I mean, yeah, I mean, like I, like I said, I mean, this is just, this is all they know. And so like kind of all my fears were sort of being confirmed here. And I'm like, well, um, what, what if you were the only company that like gave them like a weekend? You paid them the same as everyone else, but you at least gave them time to maybe go home and see their family since they've worked probably 70 or 80 hours that week. And it was it was silence. It was just this quiet stare. Like I was speaking a foreign language. And I ended up getting to know the couple. And I ended up doing their wedding. And I ended up really enjoying them. And I ended up having some deeper conversations about the kind of work that they were doing. But let me just simply say this. I think the beauty of the free market, the genius of capitalism, is that just because you can doesn't mean you should. The Apostle Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is actually beneficial. And so when we begin to understand God's economy, that is the world that God intended, you start to understand the word uh, for economy that we get is the word oikos. Oikos literally translates in the Greek to mean household. So as we would care for our household, that is the household of humanity, the household of our brothers and sisters, whether they're in the church or outside of the church, but this common uniformity that is the, the, the humanity, um, we care for one another, not at each other's expense. That there was this beautiful image, this picture that God intended us to be able to provide goods and services, to provide resources and gifts <clears throat> that are accessible. So the idea that you could gouge grieves the heart of God. The idea that supply and demand justifies the end game 
is contrary to the, to the will and the intent of a God who said, if there's a need among you, you ought to, you ought to give a hand up. That's why Jesus would fail out of most every single MBA program is because the modern way of doing economics and business is contrary to how the kingdom of God is supposed to operate in our hearts and lives. And what God has invited us into is this powerful work of restoration. This idea that even though we live in a world that it's normal to capitalize on weak moments or weak markets, there's people that are vulnerable among us and we can actually be light and life. We can speak truth and we can be people of hope in a hopeless world. And so God has invited us to be aliens and strangers in this world. He's invited us to live counterculturally with this different lens. And we need the body of Christ to be reminded that the world we go to outside is not our normal. And even though there's a way of doing commerce, it's not the way the kingdom of God, God's economy, is supposed to operate in this world. And so when we get down to it, we have to ask ourselves the questions about what it is that God actually intended. And so restoration asks the questions, is this actually God's intent? And is, this, is everyone in this actually benefiting? Because if it's God's will, and if it's God's economy, everyone prospers. And, and um, are there actually vulnerable among us? And when we begin to wrestle with those kind of questions, regardless of your day job, you begin to understand how God has called us all to be people of light and to be agents of hope. And so what we have is that, that this is the story of God's of redemption that he's been writing throughout history. And from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, we see God trying to restore and repair the world that he actually intended. And so the book of Nehemiah is a powerful illustration of God trying to restore a people that would be so set apart, so unique and peculiar that it would be a light to the rest of the world. But what we have is the people of God living in complete exile. They're an oppressed people, and they don't have their own city, and they don't have these walls, and so the book is literally a building project. It's a capital campaign. There's the rebuilding of the walls so that the people of God can reestablish their identity because there needs to be something that sets them apart from the rest of the world. But as much as they need the walls, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago is they needed the gates. Because when you have walls without gates, what you have is this profound holy huddle. And the kingdom of God is not that accessible. But when you have gates without walls, what you have is, is no conviction about what's distinct and different. And so God invites us into this grace and truth encounter and both are needed and so you have a physical building of the walls so that the people of God can reestablish their significant identity so that they can be the light to all the world Nehemiah who's living as a cupbearer to the king a thousand miles away answers the call and there's people that have been living in rubble 
for 25 years going, this is just our normal. It's just the way it is. And he's like, but this isn't what God intended. He intended so much more. And so he kind of rallies people based on, okay, you live here, you're in, you're in charge of that broken section of the wall because if it's gonna be a weak place in the wall, that's where the enemy's gonna come through. And so based on proximity, the community built up their section of the wall and they hung the new gates. And so he leverages all of his influence with the king to go rebuild Jerusalem. And so this picture, this illustration that comes to us out of Nehemiah is really the telling of our own calling, of our own story, of, of living life in Christ, this heavenly citizenship on earth, so that we would be a part, set apart as a people of God and, and, and a peculiar identity that's distinct, but that we would have gates that would swing open wide. We got a big gate event next weekend that we want to make the community of faith accessible to everyone that you might know that is spiritually curious or a spiritual free agent asking questions or that God has given you favor with. I'm saying they might not be ready for a worship service, but maybe they may be ready for a tap room and some of the best barbecue and some good trivia. Bring them, bring them. So uh, what I want to do, and, and if you have your Bibles and, and maybe take some notes along the way tonight, I want you to jot some thoughts down as we go. And I just want to kind of go through this section and read kind of passages. And so this is where it gets really interesting to me, is that you're a people that's living in exile. You're people that you might have owned land before, but now you're just working someone else's land. You're people that are living beneath the means you used to have, right? Oh, I used to be employed and now I'm unemployed, so I'm like having to tighten my belt. Or I used to have all of this land and all of these workers and now I'm just a day worker. But you have these people who are living in exile and here's the thing. There's a few people that have a little bit more than the next and they're exploiting their own kind. Okay, wait, we're all in exile, we're all rebuilding. So in addition, there's class warfare, in addition to rebuilding the wall, to tending my, to trying to put food on the table, to raising my kids, to giving them an education, you mean I've got the rich gouging me? And so this is what you see here. You've got groups. Let me just read the first uh, few verses. This is Nehemiah chapter 5. The first five verses go like this. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. Not the enemy, not the, the, the Persians, not the Babylonians, fellow Jews. This is kind of like um, the church chased me away from church. I used to go to church, but they were also hypocritical or they were so legalistic or, or there was just corruption. Or and so like I couldn't hang with my own people. This is what that is, right? Because their story is our story. And so he says, they were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we've mortgaged our fields, our vineyards and home to get food during this famine. And yet others said, we have had to borrow money um, 
uh, money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold our, some of our daughters and we're helpless to anything about it for our fields and our vineyards are already mortgaged to others. How? to mobilize and motivate the troops, let's take advantage of them. Let's kick them when they're down. So you've got a group of Jews and everyone's in the same exiled boat, except that you've got 1% that are like, hey, I've got a little bit more than you, so why don't I take advantage of you? And so there's, there's first of all, the land lists, and they're just struggling and trying to get food. That was the first category. There's people who are landowners that are now having to mortgage their land because they've got to rebuild the wall, and they've got to raise their kids, and they've got to do all the other stuff during the day. And then you've got this third group. And this third group are basically selling off family members, sons, daughters, even wives, and even men themselves, because you didn't have banks with a line of credit. What you had is human capital that you could say, could I borrow money? I'll give you my daughter until I can pay her back. So it's, it's basically indentured servitude. Because you didn't have a credit card to pluck down, you didn't go in debt, you didn't like take out a home equity line from the bank, you had large families in which you would now broker to somehow make ends meet. And the problem is, is that you're doing this within the faith community. These are all the people of God, and you're like, come on now. So if you're Nehemiah, and you're leading this charge, you left the lap of luxury at the king's winter palace a thousand miles away, and you're trying to rebuild this wall. Are you happy about these reports? And yet, let me just say this, nothing they were doing was illegal. No one was breaking the law. This was socially and legally acceptable to do. And so here comes Nehemiah, and then we read in verse 6 and 7, he says, When I heard their complaints, I was very angry, understatement. This is like, okay, now I'm going to roll up a newspaper and start swatting someone, right? Uh, and he says, after thinking it over, I spoke out uh, against these nobles and these officials. I told them, you're hurting your own relatives by charging interest when, you borrow, when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. So here you have, uh, here you have this large meeting. Now, if you remember from a couple of chapters ago, the thing that was amazing about this building project is that the whole rebuilding project took only 52 days. So it's really surprising that you would like stop the work to call a large group meeting and to have sort of a family meeting. Have you had the family meeting where it's just like the come to Jesus talk? And yet he puts, lay down all the tools, get everyone together and they're like, this ain't right. And he brings everyone together and says, this has got to stop. Now, there was this thing called a usury fee. They refer to it here as interest. What we would refer to it as extortion. And it's basically saying, don't draw revenue from someone else's misfortune. We're all living in famine, but you just happen to have a little bit more, and you're taking advantage of your own kind. This is never God's economy. So he's saying, would you just gain the gratitude of the people 
as your compensation simply by meeting their need and aiding them. And so being rational people, being God-fearing people, they're like, yeah, I, I, I guess that makes sense. And at the meeting, verse 8, I said to them, we are doing all that we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. And so he goes on a, a little bit further and he begins to unpack all that they're doing with this profound indictment. And so what it means for us, I believe, is that we need to see the community of faith as not as a consumer, not as something that we receive necessarily, though we do, but we see it as something that we broker. It's seeing something that we manage. There's a difference when you're the, the, the business owner and when you're the customer, because, or, or even the hired hand, that it's someone else's problem versus my own. And so what he's saying is, listen, this is all of ours. And guess what? We get to enjoy what we create. And if we grow, if we are blessed, if we benefit, everyone benefits. It's why God in Jer Jeremiah 29 says, seek the prosperity of the city. These are people in exile. These are people that have been conquered. But he's like, listen, if the city prospers, so do you. And so there is this command that God gives to these people. And he's like, listen, there's a way that we can do this better. There's a way that we can do this uh, that benefits everyone. And, and, and so just like a business, we can't wait for customers to show up. We can't wait for someone else to open the shop, someone else to stock the shelves, someone else to watch the kids, someone else to set up the venue, someone else to plan the event. It's ours. What we have done in the modern era that looks most different than the early church is that we created professional Christians. And we said, oh, there's paid staff to do that, to do professional church. And I'm the consumer, so I can come in and just receive. And that is a part of it. But that's just the beginning. The beginning says, I need to do something with my faith that stewards my gifts, my influence, my time, my resources, so that more benefit. This is what we call the priesthood of believers. So that the separation between the stage and the pew is no separation at all. We are a holy priesthood. We are a holy nation under God that says what we build, we enjoy. As we grow, you grow. As you struggle, we share that struggle. This is always part of God's economy. Now, uh, and so most of us have heard the analogy. It was originally called the Pareto Principle. It is the 80-20 rule that 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. 80% of the giving gets done by 20% of the people. And this was never God's economy. And he's saying, hey, we've all got families to raise. We've all got the wall to build, so to speak. We've all got food that we need to put on the table. We've all got stuff going on in our lives that make life feel full, except God has invited us to build his kingdom and, and to do it in such a way that we would steward all that we have for his glory, not for my net worth. 
And so here's what I would simply say is that I have wanted to create a, a church that didn't just have the 80-20 rule. And the good news is, in, in, in a year and a half, we're already breaking the, 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 the curve. And that is, we're at about 70-30, at least financially speaking. So the good news is, is that 70% um, of the giving is done by 30% of the people, which I consider a win. Now, the other good news is that there's 70% of people who have the opportunity to either start or increase their giving, which I celebrate that as well. But the point is, is that when we are building the community of faith, it's all hands on deck. And even when you walk in with a limp, there's still something to give. But if we wait for all of the ducks in our lives to align just perfectly, to be in a row where it says, oh, when I get kids out of high school, then I'll have time to volunteer. Or when, you know, when I can make this much money, then I'll have time to give. I tell you what, when I can do this, then I can volunteer with it. You never get there. And what he's calling every one of us to do, and this is our rhythm of generosity, is start with what you do have. Steward and manage what you do have. And so in this last section, this is where I think it's, it's the most inspiring in, in, in this chapter. Listen to the testimony of the privilege afforded Nehemiah and how he lived his life. Nehemiah, who had only known exile, he didn't know pre-exile as the freedom of the people, but he knew the history of God's people. But he was living as a cupbearer to the king and enjoyed all the benefits of it. Now, he was serving a paranoid king that was afraid that someone was always trying to poison him, and so he always literally took the cup before the king tasted the wine. He cut the meat and took the first bite so that he knew it wasn't poisoned. But he enjoyed the king's court. And he's like, wait a second. My people are living in ruins and no one's doing anything about it. Well, Ezra had already built the temple, but the walls kept the people vulnerable. So he leaves that and he comes. And he had all of these sort of privileges afforded to him and he punts on all of them. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 14. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. You understand what the food allowance is. It would be what the Redcoats could do at the founding of this country, that they could somehow come in and take the food off of the peasant's table and just sort of eminent domain their pantry. And we as Americans said, no, you can't do that anymore. And we're going to create the Bill of Rights to say, back off. Except this was his right to do that. And for 12 years, he's like, I don't play like that because if I benefit at someone else's expense, that's not God's economy. And then he says, the former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding the daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. This was legal. This was okay. But everyone was living under the oppressive rule, and they're taking advantage of those who are already down for the count. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. 
Oh, you mean because of my privilege, I get stock options too? You mean I get to have land acquisition as a part of just having this title? Yep. And he's like, nah, why should I benefit just because I've got a title and no one else does? There's people living in squalor, subsistence living. Why should I just grow my estate? What's going on? He's a, he's a kingdom citizen, right? He's got earthly citizenship, but he understands the dual citizenship uh, in light of who God is. And I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing. And even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors from other lands, the provisions I paid for each day included an ox, uh, one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Does this feel like a leader you want to fall behind? Does this sound like a, like, like a politician that you want to vote for? Does this sound like someone that you are like, man, if you're going there, I'm going with you. This sounds like someone worth following, but this is someone who's living as an alien and a stranger in a foreign land saying, God has invited us to a different kind of economy. And so I want to share with you five capitals. We're talking about Nehemiah's capital campaign. We're talking about this picture. And it's not just Nehemiah's story. It's all of our story because we all share the kind of capital expenditures, but the capital resources that, that we have on different degrees. So let me paint a picture, and I want to make this sort of a prayer time. I want this to become a sort of inventory, and I would love tonight that we would just open up maybe this altar and just offer it as a way just to come and pray. Pray as God speaks to you. Pray, come forward if you want to be prayed with, but pray about these kind of capital resources that every single one of you have regardless of your age or your net worth or your, how many kids you have, or how busy you feel. This is all of our capital resources here. And so there's five capital, capitals that we see through Scripture that we all have resources, but are all in the world today. And it's first one I would say is we all have spiritual capital. How much faith do you have to invest B. Sterling talked tonight about investing because of the, 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 the obedience to tithing. It's easy to give what you think you can afford, but that's really called tipping. But if you start with the first fruits, before all any of the bills are paid, if you start with a, a, a tithe at the beginning of the month, you are exercising a spiritual muscle that said, I trust you, God, that there will be more left over on the back end to cover all of our means. Now, I remember when Laurel and I started like with 10%, and we give more than 10% of our income away, but we started logging in and, and just, okay, we're just gonna give this away. And the first few months felt like we were belt tightening. We were watching uh, our little Chase bank account online. We get these little notices because it gets thinner at the end of the month. And we get notices about minimum, you know, account balances. Except the more we kept doing it, it just became normal and we felt it less. These are spiritual muscles that God has invited us 
to exercise. In some cases, and, and we'll talk about this, it's other kind of muscles. Um, but God has given us all a measure of faith. And to the extent that we exercise faith is the extent that our faith grows or gets strengthened. The second kind of capital is relational capital. How much relational equity do you have to invest? One of the key concepts that we've talked about in here is the people of peace. It comes out of Luke chapter 10. God has set people apart that show us favor, kindness, hospitality, uh, patience, respect. They do things for us, and we wonder, why are they so nice to us? Why are they so gracious to us? To which I would say, I believe those are the people that God has prepared in advance for you, that has given you relational capital. So the question then is, how do you want to leverage it? What kind of invite do you want to give them? What kind of next step do you want to encourage? What kind of relational capital do you have with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your family members? God has given us all a measure of influence, and the, the goal is always to help people take next steps into God's reign. Thirdly, um, physical capital. And this asks the question, how much time and energy do you have to invest? And I would say, if there's one area that people feel maybe most selfish with, it's don't waste my time. That's my time that I can't get back. So it's really hard to stick our hand in the air and volunteer to show, and I'm saying, trust God with the physical capital in your life. Now, we have some people who have discretionary time, maybe because of the kind of job they hold or the kind of life stage they hold. Whatever the stage of life is, it's a matter of saying, how do I see God at the center of my life and build everything around it? Fourthly, the fourth kind of capital is physical capital. Uh, or excuse me, uh, intellectual capital. What intellect, skill sets, competencies do you have to invest? There are gifts that each of you have. Um, uh, there are things that each of us bring to the table, whether it be baking or, or, or whether it be graphic design or whether it be the ability to host a children's class or, or whether it be helping set up or be involved musically or learn sound. Do you know that Zavi um, hadn't touched a soundboard um, three months ago? And uh, we've had Kevin showing up for a year and a half to do it every single week. And uh, um, Zavi's like, I know computers. Uh, I'm, I'm technically minded. Sure, if you train me, I'll do it. And, and now Kevin's dealing with his dad who's in the hospital and his dad's doing full-time care for his mom. And so God's raising up more people to do God's work. And so we're just so grateful for that. Fifthly, I would just say this, the, the fifth capital is financial capital. How much financial capital do you have to invest? And this is, again, all of these are areas of faith. I would just close by, by, by sharing with you a story uh, about a friend of mine who, uh, his name is Kenny McCord, and I met Kenny um, probably 15 years ago in San Francisco, and Kenny was uh, telling me the story. I said, well, what do you do in the city? 
Um, and he had such a radical perspective. He said, well, let me back up and tell you where I started. I was started and I had a lot of upward mobility in my career. I was working for Levi Strauss and Company. I was working internationally and I would go overseas and we had all these maquiladoras, these, these sweatshops. And it would be these large factories where I would oversee the production there and I'd come back to the U.S. and traveling a lot and we were making great money. But I had this call on, of God to just, I felt like God wanted to use my life. He wanted to make a difference. And so you know what I did? I quit my job at, at Levi Strauss and I took a job as a youth pastor and I cringed. Not because there's anything wrong with being a youth pastor, because that's great. We would love to have someone who would lead a youth ministry here. We need someone to kind of start to organize. We grow kids into youth ministry. But I knew what he was going to say. He said, I wanted God to use my life. And I felt like the only way to answer the call of God on my life was, well, either you're a pastor, a missionary, or maybe like work for Campus Crusader at a Christian school and you do ministry, or you're just one of those other people who just make money and go to church. And he's like, I wanted to be totally dedicated. And you could tell his whole paradigm had exploded and been reinvented. And he says, I was at this church. We had 500 high schoolers. I had youth staff. It was, for all intents and purposes, a great success with great, huge influence. And I got everything that I thought I needed in terms of praying for it. And I thought, I got to stop doing this. This is not what God's called me to. So when I met him in San Francisco, he said, and you got to understand, San Francisco is like built a long time ago. I mean, the house we were raised was built in the 20s, which was sort of normal, uh, unless they were scraping a house or something burned down. But every house, if you pull up carpets, has hardwood floors. So he gets a part of this hardwood flooring franchise, and he says, I'm going to do hardwood floor refinishing. And he says, here's the thing. I've got three kids. We live in the city. We rent a home, and I make less than $35,000 a year. Come again? And he says, here's how it works. Um, I see God as the source, and, and capital S. God is the source of my revenue. God is the source of my life. God is the source of all my provision, which means I'm totally freed up to see anyone as a dollar sign. So when I get invited into people's homes, they're people with whom I get to bless. These aren't customers. These aren't clients. They literally invite me into their homes. I sit down at their table, and yeah, we start talking about their floors. We talk about what they can do, but we talk about things. I'm not worried about how much money I can get out of them because God is my provision. He's my source. And if you read John 15, he talks about, my friend Kenny says, oh yeah, God's a sorcerer. I said, sorcerer? He says, John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If anyone abide in me and he and he, he bear great fruit. He wasn't making a lot of money, but he was bearing great fruit. I said, well, do you just get on your knees and just start doing flooring and sanding floors? He says, oh, no. See, I found a bunch of guys that I get to disciple. These are guys that have had convictions on their, on their residence. They spent time in jail. Um, they spent time in teen challenge and addiction uh, and recovery programs. And no one wants to take a risk with them. But some of them are, are asking questions about God. And these are people that I get to help restore their lives and give them a dignified trade and welcome them back in instead of letting them go back to their cruddy buddies and falling into the same old patterns. 
Now, see, these are people I get to disciple. Talk to them about what it means to run a godly business and to do honest and ethical work. His whole paradigm began to, was changed, and it was this. The call of God on all of our lives is the work of restoration. See, we live in a world that God created but didn't intend God gave us this world and he said it was good and then sin entered it and it just disrupted everything that he had hoped for. And, and ever since Genesis 3, he's trying to restore and repair and redeem a creation. And he wanted a people set apart that would be so peculiar, so distinct, so hospitable, so generous, so compassionate and knew how to give their faith to another. Come, follow me. Be a light. Be salt. That's what I've invited you into. That's the story of restoration. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 6 and 7 uh, as we kind of wind up this series that I, that I kind of coined, leading when you'd rather be leaving. <laughs> Because there is sometimes this work that God's called us into, and it doesn't feel like something that I want to be a part of. It feels, it feels like an inconvenience. It feels like a sacrifice, except that I have these moments that are really good. And so I want to invite you, as we've gone through those questions, as you just pray through your, your relational capital and your spiritual capital and your intellectual capital and your financial capital and your emotional capital, what kind of capital do you feel like you've been maybe hesitant to share with God? What kind of capital do you have to offer? But as much as I experience these kinds of prayer, usually when I start praying this way, faces start to show up. People who need to be on the receiving end of that, that invite, that care, that text, that hug. <laughs> Maybe God's calling you because we've got people in our midst. I, a couple weeks ago, I got a text from, from Chip because his company was hiring. He says, I know Zavi and Heather are looking for work, but do you know anyone else? Because he had a very specific job description. Who do you know? That's what the kingdom of God, that's, that's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. Who do you know that is in need, that needs a hand up, not just a handout? We'll do handouts too. I like handouts. We want to do hand-ups too. God, would you just speak to us in these moments? We give you this time of praise. We want to worship you with our whole lives, not just our words. We want to worship you with our hearts and our minds, our physical bodies. I pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would descend on us. And as these words linger, and as we offer up praise and, and adoration to you, that this place would be filled in a really um, active way with your Holy Spirit. Give us words. Give us faces. Give us a prompt. Lead us. Guide us. But, but speak to us, Lord. I want to invite you to just stand right now. and We're just going to call out to God and worship. If you would like to be prayed with, join me up here. If you just want to pray in your seat, that's fine too. But we want to offer this time not as the end of the service, but as a response, a, a physical, verbal, and tangible response to all that God is leading us to do.